Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on the episode today is good friend of the show, Jonathan Horton. He is back for his fourth appearance on the show. It's really his third time, fourth episode. We split the first one up into a two-parter, but regardless, he is back, and he is back to talk about his latest book, Falling Forward, How an Ordinary Kid Failed His Way to His Olympic Dream. It's his memoir. It's fantastic. You can purchase a copy of it by going in the show notes, going to his website, jonathanhorton.net. It is a great conversation. We touch on the book. We touch on what it means for the Olympics to be moved back to 2021 and his personal journey and anecdotes throughout the book as well. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. I'll be right back with Jonathan after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time, he is back once again, Mr. Jonathan Horton, the best-selling author of If I Had Known, and now also his second book, Falling Forward, How an Ordinary Kid Failed His Way to His Olympic Dream. He's an Olympic medalist. He's an American Ninja Warrior. He's a good friend of mine. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm good, Joe, man. Good to be back on your show. What is this, this the third time now? I, third yes. Or fourth time. Yes, third man. time. We, this is the fourth episode because the first time we broke it up into a two-parter. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But That's yeah, right. third time back. And I got to tell you, it's fortuitous that we're recording today because, you know, as we know, there's no sports. The Olympics have been postponed. There's nothing really live to watch. So uh, my wife and I have gone and, and have watched kind of the Olympic reruns on NBC Sports Network. Yeah. And last night was the, the women's gymnastics, specifically the highlights from the 96 uh, team, the uh, the Oh, the Mag Seven. Mag man. Seven. Thank you. I almost said Fab Seven. I went. That doesn't. That doesn't. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Fab Five. I think is what I was thinking of. Um, but yeah. So let's actually kind of dig right into that, since that's a good jumping-off point. So in your book, uh, you talk about how you, as a kid, getting brand new started into gymnastics. You're watching the Mag Seven, the Magnificent Seven, in the '96 Olympic Games. You're watching mm-hmm. Carrie Strug do the final. Uh, run and, uh, well, I'll have you, I I don't want to get the jargon wrong, but she does the gold medal winning performance for Team USA. And that is what really gave you the Olympic bug. So walk me through your experience of that as a kid getting hit by the Olympic medal, so to speak. You mean to tell me that not everybody knows that she did a Yurchenko one and a half? That's the name name of the vault. Come on. I was was trying to read that. (laughs) <laughs> just, just like ice skating, everyone knows what a triple sow cow and a double axle is, right? Come of course, on, obviously, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, that moment, it's just like you said, is kind of the moment that changed my life. You know, I was 10 years old, 1996. I'd never watched the Olympics before. And I just remember the buzz around the games. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was a big deal, obviously, because it was on home turf. It was in the United States. But um, I was just glued to my TV screen and then, you know, I've been doing gymnastics for a few years at this point. I wasn't any good at it when I was younger, but I was like, man, this is cool. Yeah. And then, you know, watching Carrie Strug run down that runway on a badly injured ankle, being the, becoming the savior of team USA, landing on one foot, doing her, your one and a half. Um, you know, it's just like a moment. I, 
can never forget and seeing her get picked up off the ground by her coach and taken right. to the awards podium and getting those medals placed around their necks. It, it was really the moment in my life that implanted this image of what I wanted out of my career. Right. And I feel like every day I am fortunate that I got to watch that moment live because I don't know if I would have done what I did later on without that moment, because, you know, we don't all get the opportunity to have a moment like that, that is etched in our brains that drives us for the next 12 years of our lives or 30 or 20 years or 30 years of our lives. I did. And I feel very thankful for that because like, I got to give it up to Carrie Strug and the Mag 7. Like they, they really <laughs> changed me forever. Right. I think there are so many stories of, you know, athletes being able to watch, um, you know, for instance, the Mag 7 in gymnastics or the Dream Team in basketball, you know, and you have these stories where people have this moment, they see it, they identify that's what they want, and then that leads to their own journey of self-realization and self-discovery and, and in your case, medal-winning performance. And and I think it's it's interesting to me the impact we have on on the next generation that we're, we're not even aware of until you have someone like Jonathan Horton talking on an interview, writing in a book that the mag seven is what inspired you to go for, forth into the Olympic journey, so to speak. And I wonder almost, and I know we're kind of in a, in a, the world is in a pause almost, and we're figuring out new ways to work and to interact and to be, but I, I wonder, and, and I saw this because the, the advertisement last year was, you know, the Olympic games were canceled for this year and pushed to 2021. And they had a great, um, a great montage about how, you know, we'll be back. We'll be there. We're just working harder. We're doing this. What do you think the potential impact of possibly a year delay of an event such as the Olympics is going to have, or do you think it is going to have any type of impact on kids uh, in the same way that like, if you weren't able to see that moment on your end? Yeah. I mean, shoot, it's such a loaded question and it's one that sure. I've been talking a lot about lately. Um, and you know, the impact is not, just it's like you said it's not just on the athletes which we could go into that too it's there's a tremendous impact on the olympic athletes but yeah there's there are young kids who have been waiting to to watch their olympic heroes and they're excited about it but you know i think that same magic is going to happen in 2021 sure um they're going to get that opportunity to to see simone biles and um you know, Katie Ledecky in the pool swimming, you know, they're, right. they're going to get that. It's going to be really special. Just like the Olympics always is. I think the bigger impact and just to go into it briefly is the Olympians themselves. I'm sure. curious to see if we have record breaking performances in 2021, like we always have at the Olympics or if it'll be somewhat subpar. And I think the reason I, I, I wonder that is because, taking a month or six weeks or maybe two months out of a sport where all you can do is, you know, cardio workouts at home and push-ups and pull-ups and stuff like that without being in the pool, without being on the track, without being on the balance beam. I mean, I couldn't imagine what that would have done to me mentally, physically, and emotionally right before the Olympic games. Right. Um, and I think that like in sports like gymnastics, where you have this really small window of peaking ability, um, 
You know, it's like Simone Biles, for instance. She was mentally and physically prepared to compete, like, now. And now she's got to take a step back, wonder, well, how hard do I push when I get back into the gym? Or do I ease back into it? Or how much time do I need? I've got to make a new plan. And then you got to wonder, well, what if the gymnast in China or Russia or, you know, uh, Great Britain, what if they've been training all along, but we just don't know. But here we are in the U.S. and we uh, we quarantine. Right. Like, so. There's just so many factors, and I'm just like, man, who knows what's going to happen at the next Olympics? And I think that that storyline alone will be one that the young kids that are 9, 10, 11, like I was in 96, don't ever forget. They don't forget. Like the, the kids that maybe weren't old enough for the 2020 Olympics but are now old enough for the 2021 Olympics coming in and taking a gold medal from someone that she yeah. would never beat the year before, right? Like, what if some young kid comes out of the woodworks that was too young in 2020, and then, you know, I don't think this will happen because she's the greatest gymnast ever, but someone comes out of nowhere and beats Simone Biles at the Olympic Games. Like, what a crazy story that would be. So, I mean, I uh, I, I could go on and on about the effects that this is having on sports in general, mm-hmm. but, I mean, yeah, it's wild to think about. You know, and and two questions come to mind, and one I want to start. Well, let me let me pivot there because you're you're right about the athletes specifically. And I, I was talking a couple of episodes back. Uh, we did an episode with Jeff Carpenter and Jared Wheeler of the Netflix documentary Last Chance You, and talking about the the impact of the delay on these student athletes as they're trying to get their shot in junior college and and go to a D one school and then go get drafted. So yeah, you're absolutely right about the impact of sports on these athletes. And I wonder, I know in soccer, men's soccer Olympic, the way that it's structured is you can only play on the Olympic team if you're 23 years old or younger, and you get three slots for quote-unquote overage players, but the prime, the bulk of your team has to be 23 years or younger, and that's to prevent stars like Lionel Messi, Lionel Messi and Neymar uh, from coming and doing what they do in the World Cup but at the Olympics to try and break it up a little bit. And yeah. so... I'm wondering about all of these guys that are going to age out before before uh, the next cycle because they were prepped and ready to go for this cycle, and now they've completely missed their shot. So that's that. I think that lines up exactly with what you're saying about people aging out of their peak in that situation. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just another example. Uh, of course, I'm using gymnastics a lot because that was my sport. But sure. <laughs> I was, you know, in 2016. Um, not, I didn't make the 2016 team nine months before the Olympics. I blasted my left shoulder. Yes. And I was going to bring this up. Yeah. 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 You yeah my, my, my career ended and you know, at 30 years old, there was, I mean, I was already ancient for the sport of gymnastics <laughs> at 30. You know, I was, the, I was six years older than the next oldest guy that made the Olympic team. And I, you know, my body just fell apart the last few years, but Let's say that didn't happen. Right. Let's say my body held up. I made the Olympic team in 2016, but all of a sudden, right before the Olympics, they were like, "Ah, sorry, crazy, crazy global pandemic. We got a quarantine. We're going to push the Olympics to (laughs) 2017. And here I am, 30 years old. My body's barely hanging on. (laughs) And at 31, I fall to pieces and don't make the team. Right. You know? So it's like, yeah, that kind of stuff is going to happen. We're going to hear stories about it. We're going to hear about athletes that they were on their like last leg of being able to perform and one more year of training, their bodies just couldn't handle it. 
I wonder too, I would really like to get your perspective on, let's say you still have that injury uh, nine months before the Rio games and you're rehabbing. And then all of a sudden the world goes into pandemic. Are you then going to push hard to try and make the 2017 team and come back from the injury? Or are you going to kind of hang still hang it up at that point? What's your perspective on, on this hypothetical scenario? Oh, I'm yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a little crazy. I would I would have come back. <laughs> I had no doubt in my mind. I was in the best shape of my life when I got hurt in 2016. I was the leanest, strongest, fastest. I was so disappointed when I got injured yeah. that I missed out on that third Olympic team. Um, after having two two shoulder surgeries before that and knowing what it took to come back, I would have known what to do. I would have put a plan into place, and I would have come back and trained for 2017. Yep. That is, uh, that's kind of what I expected, but I, I had to ask cause it's, <laughs> it's, it's all over my mind. Um, and speaking of going a little crazy, talk me through in your book, you talk a lot about how, when you got your silver medal at the Beijing Olympics and it was on the, is it called high bar? Is that the, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, high bar. yeah that's right. Uh, on the high bar competition and you got it by being a little bit crazy and throwing every single thing into your routine. And it was kind of maybe bucking tradition a little bit about what you would, mm -hmm. would have put in your routine. So walk me through the decision to do that. And especially you, you also did, I forget the name of the move, but the guy that invented the move was watching you while you were doing it. Is that, am I getting that? Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I'll try to make the story quick. It's a long story <laughs> if I share all the details. But yeah, you know, I, I was um, I was a little bit of a trickster on high bar. The if you go back and kind of follow gymnastics, which I'm sure 99.9 percent .9 of our listeners aren't like scholars of gymnastics <laughs> like I am. <laughs> um, high bar was an event that was traditionally about like grace and rhythm and you know, flow around the bar and like doing really beautiful skills with nice body line and stuff. And here I am five foot one, like kind of power pack gymnast. And I kind of broke that mold and started doing like X game style gymnastics at the age of 13 on high bar and had a lot of people tell me that my style of high bar would never be effective. It was too dangerous. It would never be a consistent type of performance and it just wasn't going to work. Well, they were right for a while. Um, I trained this pretty crazy routine for years and years and years unsuccessfully until finally <laughs> I had done it enough times that I started nailing it at competitions and I was unbeatable. And then um, I was unbeatable till the year of the actual Olympics in 2008. All of a sudden I got in my head and couldn't nail my routine anymore. I was doing like four major release elements. Um, and suddenly at the U.S. Nationals and Olympic trials, I'm falling all over the place. Mm. Well, luckily – I still made the Olympic team because my the rest of my stuff on you know on the other five events was going so well. Right. But my coaches were like, "Dude, listen, you can't go to the Olympics and look like garbage on like your best event on high bar. Right. We're gonna have, we gotta water this thing down and do something that you know you can do under pressure at the Olympic Games. You don't want to look like you look right now right. in Beijing." And uh, so I go to China. I do a much easier high bar routine, and uh, I nailed it. I was not expecting what happened. So in the preliminary round, I did my routine and I finished in seventh place over everyone in prelims. Well, if you're in the top eight, you make it into the, the finals and you get to compete for a medal. And so I was like, holy cow, how did my easier routine get me into the finals? Right. And 
I, as soon as I realized I was in the finals, it kind of hit me. I was like, well, if I do this easy routine, doesn't matter how perfect I do it. I have no shot at a medal. So I got this wild idea and I sat my coaches and my teammates down. I was like, okay guys, here's what, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to throw all of my other skills back in the routine that I was doing years ago that all of a sudden I like kept falling on. I'm going to put all those back in. And they were like, okay, all right, all right, let's just, no, no problem. And then I was like, then I'm going to try some stuff, some wild, crazy crap that nobody's ever seen me do before. And I've only done a couple times like in like training into a foam pit. And I'm going to do this and this and this. And I'm going to throw the biggest dismount ever. I'm going to do a triple twisting double back. And I'm going on a tangent in front of my team <laughs> and my coaches. They're looking at me like deer in the headlights. And I was like, so I'm going to do all that, guys. I'm going to win the gold. What do you think? And they were like frozen. They were like, John, that is the dumbest idea we have ever heard <laughs> in our lives. They were like, you're going to try a bunch of new skills. Um, and you're going to try the hardest dismount in the world. And you're going to add all your old skills back in. And you think that you're going to be able to get through that under pressure at the Olympics in front of 40,000 people live and a billion people around the world. And I was like, yeah, why not? <laughs> so, um, I just knew like, if I didn't go all out, I had no shot at gold. And right. I wanted to know that I at least had a shot at winning, winning gold. So um, I go and try this routine like 15 times, maybe 20 times in the training facility uh, during our like down days. And I was like all over the place. I was splatting all over the mats. I was slamming into the high bar. It was like it was a disaster. But uh, the day of competition came and I just I don't know, man, I had this fate. I was like, I, I can do this routine. And I had a quote in my head and i actually wrote this quote in my book um if you've ever seen the movie miracle there's a yes quote from her brooks. yeah it's about the 1980 u.s hockey team right um her brooks right before the u.s team goes out and plays the soviets he says to them guys we may play them 10 times and they beat us nine but not not this one not today right and that's kind of what i had in my head i was like i may fall on this a hundred times um but not today like I, i'm gonna get through this and i went for it i threw the kitchen sink i did everything that i possibly could Nailed every single release element, almost stuck the dismount, and didn't win gold, but I got darn close. I got a silver medal at the Olympic Games. It was it was crazy, man. It was a crazy moment. And you had you just barely missed out on gold too, right? Like you you had a, a small step when you landed your routine, and that was the only thing that they deducted you for it. Am am I yeah. remembering that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So when you know when gymnasts do their dismounts. Um, you know, we're supposed to land and everybody knows about the, the sticking a landing. Right. Well, I hit the ground and my foot, my right foot shifted forward about two inches because I had to catch my balance. And that was the difference between gold and silver. Mm. So, yeah, it was it was it was so close. That's crazy. And I love the the you know, you were talking about how this type of an event is the high bar is uh, well and gymnastics, but also this live this uh, high bar. You like the nice uh, body lines. It's very beautiful and graceful. There's power pack gymnasts doing all this kind of crazy, crazy stuff. And it's it. There's a section in your book where you're talking about when you're first getting started and you've got um, you've got your coach uh, Jim Colhane, who's a little bit of a, a yeah. mi militaristic man, <laughs> and yes, I would love to know. So I think 
probably one of the things that really helped you out because you talk about kind of what a rambunctious kid you were and you couldn't focus and you had all this energy and you loved, loved gymnastics, but it was difficult for you to focus and, and kind of have that singular focus and drive. And so I would really love for you to kind of walk us through what it was like being coached by Jim Colhane, your experience with that and how that kind of helped prep you to have that singular focus to be able to eventually get silver. Like we talked about. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I was a really just rambunctious, like ADHD kid. I was like right. bouncing off the walls at all times. Um, and I, you know, Jim Colhane was a Olympian from the late sixties, early seventies was like super old school. Like you said, militaristic. And here I am this like little kid bouncing off the walls. And I show up at his gym when I'm six years old and he's like, uh uh-uh, uh, we ain't having that. Like, right. we're, we're, we're not gonna have this kid come in here and like wreak havoc. And um, I just remember my, you know, my parents were all in. They were like, you know, Coach Colhane, you're an Olympian. You know what to do. Uh, take it, take him away. So <laughs> they they really believed in like everything he did, and he was hard on us as as little kids. Um, and I remember learning so much. Like I. It sounds bad now, but like I used to get yelled at and screamed at, but very quickly I like, I learned like how to like that. Okay. All right. That didn't work. I just got yelled at for that. Like I need to focus and pay attention on this over here. Right. And I started learning so fast by being able to just like look at the man and stop, like calm my brain down for a second. Because like, like I said, my mind was just like going crazy and he really taught me how to focus on the task at hand and how to, you know, escape the distractions that were around me, even as a little kid. And, you know, I only was with him for like four years before I went to another facility, his gym closed down, but his style, um, you know, I know it didn't work for everybody, but for me, for a kid who, um, was really wild, it settled me down. It made me see like what it took to be successful. And, a sport like gymnastics, which is, it's just every little minute detail matters. And for him, it was more than just creating good gymnasts. It was keeping people safe and creating good people. Um, And I'm still good friends with with coach Colhane now, you know, he's almost 80 years old and uh, (laughs) he's a, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a good dude. I'm very thankful that I started with him. I love the relationship that we have with our educators, coaches, teachers in our formative years. And I think they really teach us a lot about who we are as individuals and how we're going to be shaped, you know, as adults. And, and I just think about the fact that when I was, um, you know, I had had a bunch of different teachers. So I got my, uh, uh, I played sports, played hockey, but I got my degree in theater. And so I had a bunch of different acting teachers and there was one that still sticks with me to this day. And he was the hardest person to please. He was so frustrating. He would not give compliments. He would tell you everything you're doing wrong. He would never say like, good job or anything. And all I remember was first, my first reaction was like, this guy's an asshole. Like, who is this guy? Like, what is this guy doing? And then finally, I was just like, well, I got to you know, I would give him my best stuff and he'd just be like, well, you didn't do this right. You didn't do that right. And I'm like, oh, and then finally, finally, at the end of the semester, we had like our final performances and I did all this crazy stuff. I pulled out of my ass and worked hard on and best performances I'd ever done all this Shakespeare. And I got done and he just looked at me 
and said, he pointed right at me and said, good job. And I, I just remember <laughs> being like, oh my God, okay, all right, all right, there we go. And But it spurred me on to be better. And I, I always carry that with me and use it as a self-critique. And if I ever got lost, I, I came back to that as my baseline, my foundation for what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? How can I recalibrate? And so I think- yeah. I think you really, and I, and I think you can see through the rest of the book and then talking through your career as well, how you used the lessons that you learned about like calming your brain down in the moment, having that singular focus and that drive to be able to get the stuff done when you need to get it done is what propelled you forward. Because I mean, to your point, you, and I love this about your book, you do a great job of, yeah, you do talk about the successes, but you spend a lot of time talking about the in-between moments, right? The moments where you failed, the moments where you learned, the moments where you got back up and kept going and the people that helped you with that. And mm -hmm. I think that's so key because on paper, I, I, you know, as we we're talking about earlier, on paper, you probably shouldn't have been an Olympic medalist, but you defied the odds because of your work, your determination and your drive and your passion. And that's what you can't see on paper, you know, is the internal yeah. stuff. Well, and you know, you probably picked up on this too. One of the other things I was, I was fortunate to just have the stars aligned. Mm -hmm. uh, I just like everything fell into place for me. And uh, I don't know if it was a divinely inspired thing or, or what it was, how it all came together, but I had the right coaches at the right time. I had the right place to train. I had the right people around me. I had the, the mind, the work. Um, and I, I'm just like every day I wake up and I can't believe how it all came to be. And, you know, one of the things that's um, kind of going back to the whole coach thing, I Jim Colhane was a great coach, but he had one way of doing things, and it was good for me at that time. But the next coach that I had in my life, Tom Meadows, I truly believe is one of the greatest coaches on the planet for any sport. And the reason that I say that is I think the greatest coach in the world is someone that can read their athlete and know exactly how to get into that athlete's mind. So mm -hmm. my, my coach, Tom – has a group of 60 athletes currently at the gym. He treats all 60 of those guys a little bit differently. He recognizes which ones he needs to yell at and who who are who that's effective for. Some people like me and Tom was with he was very hard on me and because when someone jumped onto me, it fired me up inside to prove to them that I could do what they were not happy with. Right. Some people don't respond to that at all. Yeah. Some people shut down and they're like, I, I can't. I, he's yelling at me. I can't do it. Tom is so masterful at recognizing which people he's got to lift up and encourage all the time. And who does he need to make laugh? And who does he need to do this and this and this to get the most out of them? Which is why he has Olympians. He has world team members, national team members at every level of the sport because he's mastered what it means to like understand the human being. And I think that that is something that for coaches, whether you're an entrepreneurial coach, whether you are, um, you know, coaching sports, if you're a father, if you're a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, understanding that your kids, their brains are different and you've got to understand like how do you get to them in different ways to help them be the best person that they can be. And I, I'm so thankful 
that I had the foundation laid from Jim Colhane, and then I was able to go to somebody else that just masterfully taught me how to be the best person that I could be in the sport of gymnastics. And, um, you know, I, I wish that a guy like Tom could go and teach other coaches how to do that because (laughs) I mean, it's not just like magic that he has the greatest gymnastics team in the United States right now. Wow. Um, and so I don't even remember where I was going with all that, but I just thought I was, I, you, you were t- you're talking about the coaches and all that. And I just wanted to go off and just explain like how fortunate I was to be in that situation. Right. It's so crazy when you're talking about the stars aligning and having everything work out because you are right in that it, it, you know, it is a little bit uh, of whether divine intervention, whether luck, you know, things have to fall the right way, so to speak. And I would love for you to talk a little bit more. I know you've touched on it before, but it's really special when you write in your book about getting the the bronze medal with Team USA all standing there on the podium and then returning home and what the response was from different Americans as they were seeing you, interacting with you and the team. I really just kind of want you to walk us through what it was like after you've won the bronze medal and then you specifically the silver medal in Beijing, you're returning home. What does that feel like? Now you are finally the person that is being watched by a kid saying, that's what I want to do. What was that mm-hmm. like for you? Oh man. I mean, it was a little bit hard to understand at first, honestly. Sure. Uh, you know, I stepped off the airplane from China and I remember walking through the airport. I was, you know, I was just hanging out by myself. I was coming <laughs> home from the Olympics, you know, and yeah. here I am walking through the airport. All of a sudden people started coming up to me and you know, when you're at the Olympic games, you're, you're in your zone. You know, yeah. you're, you're doing your thing. Of course, you know, it's the Olympic village and you know, it's the Olympics, but really I think most athletes would say it just feels like another competition. Yeah. And you, you have the cameras in your face and the arena's packed, but it doesn't hit you how many people tune into the Olympics until you return home. Yeah. Because I had never, ever one time in my life gotten off a plane and nine out of 10 people recognize me as soon as I was like walking off the tarmac, you know, it's right. like, uh, people just kept coming to me. Like, Dude, I just saw you on TV, bro. What are you doing in the airport? <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm coming home from the Olympics. <laughs> right. So, and like, I got swamped in this airport and people were asking for autographs and I almost missed my next flight. And then I, since I was in college, I flew to, uh, Norman, Oklahoma. I got, uh, well, she was my fiance at the time. And I picked up my, fiance my now wife and uh we drove to houston to go see my family and when we got to houston i pulled up to my house at you know sometime at night i can't remember probably more accurate in the book at this point at eight nine ten o'clock at night right. and there was like 200 people in my front lawn whoa and somebody had gotten word that i was going to be coming home my mom says it wasn't her but i'm not <laughs> sure she was like calling news stations my son's coming home she's right. very proud of me um but there was like news crews and hundreds of people in my front lawn and as soon as i got home i signed autographs for a couple hours took pictures with people and for the next like six months to maybe a year i i didn't didn't want to be like pretentious in any way i didn't want to like have a big head but we had to go and sit in like the back rooms and restaurants because (laughs) people wouldn't let me eat yeah and um 
I like I only got a silver and a bronze. I can't even imagine what happens to the gold medalist. Right. So <laughs> it's like it's it's just crazy, man. And you know, for, uh, fame and fortune and all that is is fading, right? Yeah. And um, people, I get recognized maybe once once a month now, you know, from somebody that's got like a photographic memory from twelve years ago seeing me <laughs> at the Olympics. But, um, it was it was really cool at the time to to be recognized and to have people appreciate what i had accomplished um but it's still to this day it's like kind of hard to really understand like how to how to take all that in i, I actually say this in the book like i i kind of get how celebrities people like justin bieber they go through these like deep dark like crazy times because they have no privacy they can't go anywhere right i had just like a small taste of that and i remember like in the moment i was never more thankful for th- for anything than when someone would come up to me and instead of like going crazy just like some guy walking up to me and just like very discreetly going hey man um congrats at the olympic games watch a big fan and they walk away that's all they wanted to do just yeah. say that versus like shake your hand ask for an autograph talk to you for like 10 15 minutes and like that's really cool and, but it, when it happens every day, like a thousand times, yeah, like I totally get how these celebrities lose their minds. So, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I get it. But at the same time, you've got to take a moment to breathe and go, "Wow, okay, I did something special. I can be, I can be an inspiration to people right now, and I, I need to take this role that I've been given by God very seriously." Right, right. So that's kind of where my headspace was with the whole thing. I like it. Walk me through your experience now that your kids are getting started on their own gymnastic path. How has it been like for you to both see and support them in their journeys? And then also, how have you balanced the line between parent and coach? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am very actively trying to take take the same role in my kids' athleticism as my parents my parents laid out a great model with me and that model was kind of stay out of it yeah (laughs) Um, they uh, my mom and dad they encouraged me to work really hard they encouraged me to finish what i started but never did they want to put any pressure on sure they never told me you got to do this you got to become an Olympian. You've got to get a scholarship to college. They they never put anything on me like that. And I mean, so much to the extent where they they were at every competition I went to. They supported me to the fullest. And I'd go to a big competition and I'd bomb horribly. And as we jump in the car to go home, um, you know, my mom and dad. This like the conversation literally was, huh? Well, that that wasn't that great, huh, John? And I'd be like. <laughs> Yeah, that pretty much sucked. And they'd be like, you uh, said you want to talk about it? And I'd, 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 almost always I'd be like, nope. And they'd be like, okay, well, what do you want to go eat? And so right. like, and we go eat some pizza, you know? So they never were like, what the heck was that? Like, oh, we're paying all this money to put you in the sport and you did that? Or right, right, like, right, John, right. You know, Nationals is coming up. You know you have to win. Like, that never happened to me. And I've met a lot of parents that are like that. I think it's detrimental. Yeah, kids. Definitely. I really do. I was successful in my sport because I wanted to be successful in my sport. It wasn't anyone else's dream. It wasn't anyone else's goal. Um, 
it, it, my parents put me in gymnastics having not really done any sports themselves. Like my dad played baseball in high school, but he knew nothing about gymnastics. My mom was a fan of Mary Lou Retton, but other than that, right. she didn't know anything about gymnastics. And they kind of stuck me in it blindly and we're like, huh, well, we don't know what to tell you. So I guess we'll just depend on the coaches you have. And that's kind of ignorance was bliss for me. Right, like, right, right. The fact it, it, it was just really nice to not have parents because I had teammates where I like saw their parents really jump on them for having bad performances. And I always blew my mind. I'd be like, man, your mom and dad were really hard on you. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're all they're always like that. I'd be like, ooh, man, I'm glad my parents aren't like that. Right. So right. it's too much pressure. Uh, it's just too much pressure for any kid. I think so. And and I think, uh, well, I know that there are so many studies out that talk about how kids get burned out on sports earlier and earlier, depending on the way their parents get involved in the sport. And I think that's exactly to your point. So, I mean, it's it can be... It can be detrimental to be yelling or be in the kid's face about it. It can be detrimental to, you know, talk to them after the fact about like, well, we're getting you in all these extra classes and extra competitions and extra teams because, you know, we got to, we got to, you know, practice, practice, practice. That makes perfect. Right. So, you know, it can be de detrimental either way. And I think the way your parents approached it and the way you're working on approaching it is key for a successful career because you're right it is on the kid do you want to keep doing it i think there yeah. is some merit on sticking out a commitment you made you know mm -hmm. if you if you made a commitment for the semester or for three months or a year whatever then writing that out but i do think at, at that point then it's like okay do you want to stick with it yes no okay that works yeah yeah absolutely and you know that's one of the things that i'll do with my kids is all right you said you're 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 starting this season we're gonna finish this season right we're gonna get through this you know it may get tough you may have moments where you want to quit but we're gonna we're gonna finish what we start and um I, I just think that's a really valuable lesson to work on with your kids from day one yep. and if they get to the end of the season and they're still miserable then it's like okay let's let's find something new for us to do but yeah you're you're absolutely right and you know <laughs> i i've told this story a few times a couple of years back i was at a uh, event i was speaking at a, a large company event there were probably a thousand people in the crowd and um i'll never forget i always save like five ten minutes at the end of all of my corporate events for for q a and this lady in the very back she raises her hand they bring her a microphone and she's like giddy with excitement she's like oh my gosh I was so excited for you to be here speaking with us today. She's like, my son is a gymnast just like you. He's, I think he was like 11 or 12 years old. And she's like, I want him to be an Olympian so bad. And he loves gymnastics. I know he loves gymnastics and he's going to go to the Olympics. And so right now um, I've got him, he's training five days a week. He's doing four hours a day, and then we've got him doing private lessons on this day and this day and this day, and we've got him homeschooling. What else do you recommend we have him do so that he can go to the Olympics like you? Wow. And I, like, froze in my tracks. And I looked at her, and I, like, I remember, like, my heart was beating a million miles an hour because I didn't know if I should say this in front of a thousand people. <laughs> but I said it anyway. I was like, lady, leave your kid alone. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> I was like, 
you are burning him out as we speak. Yeah. And she just like, I could see her melt and I felt bad that I said it, but I think it needed to be said. Yeah. Um, because she was like, she thought she needed to do all of these things for her child. And all she was doing was making her son hate the sport. And right. I didn't even know him. And I guarantee he was miserable. Um, so I, I think that we have to keep an eye on the programs that our kids are in and the coaching just to make sure our kids stay safe. But overall, I'm a big believer finding a, in finding a coach that you trust and letting that coach do what they are an expert at doing. And that is guiding your kid to becoming the best that they could be. Right. As we're getting ready to wrap up and head into the final segment of the show, is there one last piece of advice or story that you covered in the book that we haven't touched on that you would like to share? Oh man, there's a bunch in there. Were there any that stood out to you? I, I, I wrote the book about a year ago now and <laughs> I must've read it like, I don't know, shoot hundred times reading it as I was proofing it. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything in there that um, could be valuable to people. Um, I think uh, nothing's jumping out at me at the moment. I think I really love the story and I know you've told it before about you, your first your first competition, your first nationals, and you uh, ended up being 50 out of 50. And, oh, yeah. And how, if I recall correctly, I, I don't, I'm trying to find the spot in the book where I marked it, but I believe out of all of those other, the 49 other people that finished ahead of you, you were the only yeah. one that went to the Olympics and got a medal. Yeah. 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 So, so that's, uh, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so that's probably my favorite story to share with people because it's the epitome of what my career was mm -hmm. um i was 11 years old it was my first somewhat big competition that i ever went to it was a competition for 11 and 12 year old boys it was called the future stars national championships and i barely even got into the meets. i squeaked in and this was kind of the beginning of where i started kind of figuring out what you know my niche in the sport was and how to become a better gymnast well at that meet there were like you said there were 50 kids the best 15, they were going to make the national team. Right. And uh, I was kind of hoping that it would be my breakout moment. I was thinking, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to have this, this amazing performance. Nobody's ever really believed in me up to this point, but I'm going to show people really what I'm made of. Well, um, you know, for our listeners, there's six events in men's gymnastics. So I got through my first five, the best I'd ever done in my life up to that point. I was like on fire. And going into my final event, I was in the top ten. And my coach told me that he was like, man, John, this is the best you've ever been. You're, you're currently in the top 10, get through this last routine. You're going to be a national team member. Well, my last event was the pommel horse, which nobody really understands pommel horse. Anyways, if you're not a big gymnastics fan, it's kind of a confusing <laughs> event, a little I, bit stupid anyway. I watch it and I still don't quite understand it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I understand it either, but, um, it's, it's a very complex event. It was my worst event. And I just remember as soon as my, uh, coach told me, that I was in the top 10, he was, he was trying to calm me down because he was like, Hey, look, man, you don't even need to be perfect right now. Just get up there, do a nice, easy routine. You don't need to put any pressure on yourself. Just get through it. And, and man, you're going to accomplish your goal. And it had the opposite effect on me. It like freaked me out. And, uh, my, my heart just like went a billion miles an hour. My legs started shaking violently, jumped up to the routine, immediately fell, jumped back up, fell again, and ended up falling six times. And on a scale of 1 to 10, I scored a 1.9 on my palm horse routine. Oof. And because of that final performance, I finished dead last. And um, 
I just remember being so embarrassed and devastated. It was the first time in my career that I wanted to quit gymnastics. I was like, I can't handle this pressure. I'm never going to be able to handle this pressure. It's too much. I think I should just be done with this. And there was that little voice in the back of my head, like there always was, that just like, John, you love the sport. You know you want to become an Olympian. Get back in the gym. Keep going. And, you know, many years later, out of all 50 of the kids that were in that meet, only one of them became an Olympian and won two medals, and that was me. It was a kid that got dead last. And <laughs> I, I love being able to use that story just to share with people that regardless of where you are now, regardless of what position you're in, it's it's a cliche thing to say, but I say it anyways. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Right. If you start weak, you can still finish strong. And I just I simply – stuck with it. I outlasted my competitors. I realized that my sport, that life, everything is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And uh, I just kept going, man. And I mean, I don't even know if any other kids that were at that meet even made an Olympic team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, or even got close. And so much less get a medal. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of wild to think about. It is crazy. And I love that because in that story, you're falling and we talk about the fact that you literally fell and then you ended up falling forward in your career to your bronze and your silver medal. That's fantastic. Well, Jonathan, we are going to transition to my favorite segment of the episode, the dad joke of the week. It's a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guests in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guest. So it works out. Uh, but I do like to always offer up my guest first crack. So Jonathan, do you have any jokes you would like to offer up today? You know what? I, being on this show for the third time, you would think that I would become, <laughs> I would come prepared with a dad joke. And I, man, I'm upset that I don't have one ready right now. It's all good. It's all good. I got three for us. So, <clears throat> Uh-oh. Here we go. So, Jonathan, uh, what musical instrument is found in the bathroom? Oh, man. This is already rough. I don't know. <laughs> a tuba toothpaste. A tuba toothpaste. Tuba toothpaste. <laughs> yep, yep, All yep. Right. All yeah. right. Um, uh, so, yeah, I wanted to uh, ask you, Jonathan, where do horses live? I don't know, Joe. Where do horses live? In neighborhoods. Neighborhoods. Oh, man. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> Come on. Give me a good one. All right. Last one. <clears throat> uh, Jonathan, what are the strongest days of the week? The strongest days. <laughs> I don't know. Saturday and Sunday, because the rest are weekdays. Oh, man. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was good. But there it is. <laughs> I think I like that one. All right, all right. Uh, well, Jonathan, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, I think the best way is probably social media. All things social media these days. You know how that goes. Uh, yep. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, my handle is jhorton11. On Twitter, it's j underscore horton11. 11 was my competition number throughout my entire career. And then um, people can follow my Facebook fan page. It's just Jonathan Horton. And if you, you would like, feel free to, when you're on my Instagram, go to my profile. You will see my website handle and my email. Um, so I like to stay very available to people. Reach out to me if you have any questions, uh, anything like that. Please um, feel free to shoot me an email. Also, I do have a 
websites that you can go and shop if you would like a book signed personalized from me you can go to jonathanhorton.net and then click shop it'll take you right there perfect and of course we'll put all these links in the show notes as well and you started a new uh facebook show right hanging with the hortons <laughs> yeah my <laughs> wife and i man we're losing our minds during this quarantine um and we like god's honest truth we were like what can you and I do right now to connect with people? And like, this is bad, but throw our kids into their rooms with their little Kindle iPads and just leave us alone for like an hour. Right. (laughs) And we were like, let's, let's do like a, a goofy show where we just like talk to gymnastics people or whoever tunes in. And so on Thursday nights at six o'clock, um, we've just been going live for an hour on my Facebook page and just talking about just like stupid stuff. We've been having a blast with it. We were only going to do it once. And we had, I don't know, like a few hundred people that tuned in and they were like, Hey, you should do it again. I don't know if we're going to do one this week. We haven't decided yet, but it's just like, seriously, it's just like on a whim. I love it. That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on the book on all your success and thanks for coming on. And we do need a hashtag for this episode. Should we go with hashtag falling forward? Hashtag falling. But what was, man, I had a brilliant hashtag, like first show. I wish I could remember what that was. Oh, uh, oh, we did. Um, like way back when we did, uh, that's Usain. Um, but we oh. did, we did a different one though. Um, cause that was a two parter. I cannot find, that hashtag at this point. Oh, well. It's okay. That was, man, I was super stoked about that hashtag, but we'll, you know, we'll do hashtag falling forward. We'll keep it cheesy and, and simple this time. <laughs> that works. Well, listeners, uh, we will be back next week with another great episode. Uh, but until next time, hashtag falling forward and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.